welcome to episode 126 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sacramento trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all of the podcast players by going to sidecomer.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm featuring a conversation with Kobe Langley, Senior Vice President for Red Cross International Services and Service to the Armed Forces. Kobe is a combat veteran of Iraq, as well as having served in the White House during the Obama administration as a director of Wounded Warrior, Veteran, and Military Family Engagement at the White House. In his role at the Red Cross, Kobe provides oversight and direction for American Red Cross programs around the world. Kobe also oversees the worldwide support provided to service members, veterans, and their families, the oldest congressionally chartered mission of the American Red Cross. Find out more about Kobe by checking out his bio on our show notes. So let's get into my conversation with him and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Kobe, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to spend some time with you today. I'm looking forward to a great conversation about the American Red Cross. But before we get into that, I'd like to provide you an opportunity to share your background from your military service, your extensive governmental service, and why the work you're doing is so important to you. Dwayne, first, thanks so much for having me. I think anytime people in our community can get a chance to give back. They're going to take it. You yourself working in the mental health field is a perfect example. And then going on to sharing important information like this for people in our community. It's something that we all want to do when we get out, but not too many people really know how to do it. A lot of people don't even recognize that they need some level of service or giving back when they get out until they try a job or two and it's just not clicking for them. But when I first got out, I went into private practice and was making a lot of money, doing really well. And started getting questions from veterans who needed help with their VA claims. And I wasn't in that area, but I knew a lot of people in the area and just started learning how to do that work and engage with a couple of veterans, help with their claims and a couple of other incidents of service members getting a little bit of trouble, kind of helping them out a little bit. And I realized that's what I need to continue to do. I need to continue to try and figure out how to help people in our community. When I uh, eventually got a chance to do that in a more formative way, I, I helped, uh, friend of mine who served in Iraq and become elected the first Iraq war veteran to Congress. And from there, went on to work for the Obama administration as a senior advisor to Secretary Shinseki at the VA. We worked on strategic initiatives for all the offices that report directly into him. And then I went to DOD, got a chance to do some work in the Department of Defense Office of Wounded Warrior Care. And then I ended my stint at the White House, working directly for the president, doing constituency work. So my journey into this space really just is, I think, a reflection of a lot of service members' experience. They're, they're trying to figure out a way to get back into this feeling of mission and purpose and giving and caring for people, but they just don't know quite how to get there. So my path was a pretty attenuated one. Got a chance to serve here at the Red Cross, and of course, took that coming straight out of the White House. I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, that's that's my journey. I served six years in the Army as a, a JAG officer and two combat deployments and 
got the bug and never really left the community. I think since, I guess, technically since I'm 17, so I signed my contract. <laughs> I think it's interesting hearing that there wasn't a lot of leaving the military and especially getting into government work and advocacy work. A lot of Vietnam veterans did that, not a large chunk, but a lot of Vietnam veterans did that. But then that died off. There really wasn't sort of a pattern for post 9-11 veterans to do that. Like you said, it was really like catch as catch can, just trying to figure out but really, we are the next generation of leadership in this country, especially those with the military service. Yeah, I think so. It's interesting because every person that I talk to that wants advice on how to transition or is currently, I talk to a lot of people that are actually currently in jobs. They talk about this loss of esprit de corps and camaraderie and, and purpose. But to a person, uh, they all talk about their leadership and their, the leadership skills they learned when they were in the military and how undervalued it is in their current job or their current position. And they want to get to a position that's two or three slots in front of where they currently are. It's a very common narrative. And it's most interesting to me because if you engage with Fortune 500 executives, we have quite a few on our board, what they'll tell you, the biggest thing that's missing is leadership. Technical expertise and competencies are abundant, but true leadership knowing how to make hard decisions in high stress environments in complex settings, that skill set is something that just almost doesn't exist anymore in, in the corporate sector. And so you find a lot of people looking for that. So there's this really interesting disconnect between the amount of time that you have to get in the private sector to be considered for those jobs. And then the skills and competencies that you have when you get out of the military as a even an E4, right? Or E5, you're still learning leadership and how to lead teams and to motivate them and get them moving. It's a really valuable asset. And hopefully we'll see more and more leaders, post 9-11 veteran leaders engage in the communities. You're starting to hear about a couple of them, right? You're starting to hear about a couple of them working their way into the corporate sector and into the government sector. And you've got quite a few members of Congress on both sides of the aisle. We've got governors and city officials. And so you start to see them move their way into these, these leadership positions over time. And I agree with you. I think that will be a really critically important part of our future as a nation. But it's interesting. You just mentioned, obviously, the private sector, obviously the governmental sector, but also you serve in a senior leadership position in the nonprofit sector, like what you just mentioned about Fortune 500 companies. I also served in nonprofits, nothing to the extent, obviously, the size of the American Red Cross. But a lot of the nonprofit leadership, I think, that people are seeing when they think of veterans and nonprofit or service or former service members in the nonprofit space, they think of military and veteran nonprofits, not things like other large nonprofits like the American Red Cross. That is a really interesting dynamic. And the American Red Cross is also a congressionally chartered veteran service organization. So it was chartered back in 1906. So it's one of the longest standing congressionally chartered organizations to serve the veteran and military family community. But interestingly, it's actually one of the only 501c3s that do that. So there's another section of the tax code that provides specific benefits and services and in some cases exemptions for organizations that are exclusively or predominantly led by military veterans. So you think of the American Legion, the VFW, AMVEDS, DAV, those organizations are also congressionally chartered, just like the American Red Cross, but they sit under a different part of the tax code. And maybe three other 501c3s out of the hundred or so, maybe a couple hundred congressionally chartered veteran service organizations. So it is a really unique 
construct, but it is one that's codified into law. And so you'll see organizations that are in the space, like United Way is in the space. They do a lot of really interesting things around two-on-one and connecting military veterans. The YMCA, which is has a branch called the Armed Services YMCA, right? And so they have their own congressional charter. Those organizations that do more than just serve the veteran military family community, I think they have a bit of an advantage in that they can gain and also green talent from outside of our ecosystem. We have a tendency in the veteran military family community to recruit from ourselves, to engage with ourselves, and to serve amongst ourselves, where more than 60% of my workforce, maybe even 70%, are actually not veterans at all. We have a team right now that's deployed in and around Ukraine, and we've had teams deployed in Afghanistan and Iraq, and they were not military veterans. They were just everyday American citizens that wanted to give back. And being able to tap into that talent, as well as to help educate the public writ large about what our experience is like. I love the BSO organizations, but I also think that there's a place for nonprofits that don't have a passing interest in serving the community, like the American Red Cross, have a longstanding commitment to serve the community. That can be a really powerful model. No, I appreciate that background. And in, in really, as you said, you served and as I served, anyone who has served in any branch has heard of and likely benefited from the support of the American Red Cross. Is I, I served over half of my career overseas, two tours overseas, and of course, the Grand World Tour of all of the places. But again, as you were just referring to, the Red Cross really isn't just a military-focused organization. There are many, many different branches that are supporting things beyond just supporting the military and veteran population. Yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting legacy. If you think back to the founding of the American Red Cross, Clara Barton on the Civil War battlefield, Battle of Antietam to be specific, right? So her inspiration of creating the American Red Cross came from that experience, from recruiting other nurses. She was a self-taught nurse practitioner, but recruiting other nurses, bringing medical supplies to the front line to that, which at the time, actually still today, is the bloodiest one-day battle in U.S. warfare history. And so just having that experience for her, she was a humanitarian before she started the American Red Cross. She was in her early 40s. But when she did that, the catalyst for her was this intense sense of a creating a safe space and assisting service members in recovering from this extremely traumatic event and their families recovering from the death of their loved ones. And nobody was really doing that, right? And so the evolution of morale and welfare, MWR activities within the military has obviously grown exponentially since then. But when she started, that wasn't a thing. And so this concept of caring for the warfighter, caring for their wounds and their illnesses and their mental health and their family, that's how we started. And we're able to continue that tradition of care even today. And we have 12,000 volunteers in military treatment facilities and every single VA hospital in the country has a Red Cross volunteer team. And that type of service, that type of engagement is only possible because of the size and scope and breadth of the American Red Cross and the knowledge of the American Red Cross in those communities. A lot of times it isn't the, the services that we provide on the military installation but rather it's the ability of us to respond to 
a tornado or a hurricane or a flood that gets us noticed and gets us the attention of the local military community and the local community. So it's that hyper-local connectivity that we have by responding to everyday crises that I think really gives the American Red Cross this ability to continue the service for such a long time, but also to be integrated into the community to address their broader humanitarian needs. Yeah, as you're talking, I always think about the Red Cross is always there when you need them, but you're not able to always be there when someone needs you if you're not there all the time. And I think that's the point you're getting at. Absolutely. There's, we've had a couple of different calls to action over time or mission statements or vision statements. And one of them was always there all the time from a few years back, but it is this ubiquitous idea that no matter where you go in the United States, there's an American Red Cross not too far away. We're in 2000 zip codes around the country over, gosh, almost 50, 55 different regions and hundreds of chapters. And I think that, that ubiquitous nature of the American Red Cross that's always there when the community has a crisis. So it's one thing to be there, but it's all, it's something quite different to know that if there's a flood, if there's a tornado, if there's a hurricane, if there's a fire, no matter what, the Red Cross is going to be there, right? And presence is important, but also having impact is important as well. And so whether it's providing necessary blood for local communities or helping tackle a national blood shortage, right? You've got the American Red Cross is everywhere collecting blood to, to help the, the blood needs of our country, cancer patients need blood all the time. We just started a new initiative to help address the issue around sickle cell anemia, which requires a very specific blood tither. So you show up, right? You show up for these really important issues in the community. That matters almost more than a physical presence, really. I absolutely agree. Obviously, we all know this is like the thing that everybody knows, but we know how the Red Cross supports emergency notifications for service members. And as you were mentioning, disaster relief, also a well-known aspect of the organization. But do you have some specific programs to support the military-affiliated community outside of really what sort of everybody knows? We do. They build on the strengths of the organization holistically, but thematically, you'll recognize a couple of things. So the first one, and I think the most important one, is our emergency communication messages. And uh, today, we'll receive anywhere between 300 to 500 calls. Those calls will be from a military spouse or a grandparent uh, or a loved one who is experiencing some sort of significant crisis or trauma at all. It might be the death of a loved one, or it might be the serious illness of another loved one and their service member somewhere overseas. What our team does is where we take those calls 24-7, 365, and because we have a HIPAA exemption under law, we can represent the family to the military command, as well as engage with a formative discussion with the healthcare, with the, with the healthcare provider. And our volunteers will verify the medical emergency of that loved one. We'll, we'll just say it's a daughter who's had a traumatic event, right? And so daughter's in the hospital, Red Crosser will call the hospital and representing the family and say, please explain to me what's going on. So I can then take that information and communicate it to the command where, you know, her father or her spouse or her parent is. And then the command receives that message and now it's verified, right? So you don't have in, somebody in DOD calling healthcare providers all around the United States trying to figure out whether Joe Snuffy's daughter is really sick or not, right? Like that, they're not in the business to do that, but we are. And so when that message is received, it's ultimately up to the command to make a decision on whether to send them back home. But 
oftentimes having that verified message is the difference. And so they know they've got the message. They know it's a legitimate healthcare need. It's been verified by the Red Cross. And then we help them come home. We might provide financial assistance. That's often a request. Sometimes people will be able to get emergency leave and get back home, but sometimes not. And sometimes they can't get back quick enough. There's been more than one occasion where we've worked with military aid societies like Army Emergency Relief or Air Force Aid Association, and we pick up the cost of the ticket, get a commercial flight, get them back same day. We do that. And when they get home, again, this, is, this goes to the, the community ubiquity. When they get home, service member will get a call from an American Red Cross staff member in their community. And the conversation will be very straightforward. I know you're here for emergency leave. We understand the situation with your daughter. Uh, please let us know what other services you might need during your emergency leave period. And literally, those, that staff and that volunteer, no matter where they are in the United States, will open a case and then start assisting them in meeting whatever, meet, whatever other needs they might have. They might get stuck at the hospital for a week, or they might have family members coming in and they need transportation assistance getting to the hospital. They might, they might be having a memorial service and they need volunteers. It doesn't really matter. Whatever that service member needs during that critical emergency leave period, they've got the Red Cross to help them. That's our main program. And we provide that service quite frequently every day. And there, there are many others as well. Yeah, and I think even hearing that, like you said, that's something that has been around for a long time, but it's always going to need to be there. That's a program that is, there's always going to be service members and there's always going to be service members deployed to far-flung places or even stationed in locations that they can't always come back to. Besides that, you also provide some support related to supporting service members and their families broadly in an ongoing basis. Yeah, absolutely. About six years ago, we recognized the demographics of the military were changing significantly, becoming much younger, many, many more families from when I started. But when I came in, there were still this lingering, if the army wanted you to have a spouse, they would have issued you one, right? There was still some of that mentality around where families weren't necessarily fully supported in the same way, or they were always supported, but it was a different level of support. And gradually over time, DOD support of the military family has expanded significantly, but there's still gaps, right? And so a big part of what we do is we try to engage the military family in understanding what those needs are. It might be financial assistance, and we facilitate $6 million in financial assistance to military families, as an example. It might be challenges with mental health or behavioral health, and they're not comfortable going to a DOD healthcare provider or a mental healthcare provider, right? And in, in, her, in her wisdom, the former chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff spouse, came to us and said, listen, I'm a Red Cross volunteer. And I can tell you that there are so many military family members that I talk to that will never go see a mental health care provider from DOD. It doesn't matter how many times you get out on board and talk about stigma. It won't impact your career. Don't worry about your security clearance. They're not going to do it, but they still have a need. You're there being the Red Cross and you have access to licensed behavioral health care providers and other clinicians and things of that nature. Would you train them on how to do some light interventions? And so we did that. So we created this resiliency oh. workshop, gosh, almost a decade ago, before I even got to the Red Cross. And that workshop is an introduction to behavioral health, communication, and coping skills. So how do you communicate to your spouse, to your loved one, to your kid, what you're going through, and then allow them the space to hear that and then engage with you in a series of discussions. So it's a facilitated session, usually 12 families by a licensed behavioral health care provider. 
the curricula is AMA certified, American Medical Association certified. We go through that certification twice a year. And there's about 600 volunteers that do this work. Any given year, we might do 20,000 of those family cases a year. And usually it's a very productive experience because now they're in a safe space. They've got, the, they've got the trusted brand of the Red Cross. They know that provider understands what they're going through because we have this connection with the military. So there's a cultural competency piece in there. And usually those service members will go on to see additional behavioral health care providers as needed. So the proof of concept is if you just introduce them in a safe way to how to use behavioral health resources and licensed clinicians, that they'll be more inclined to continue that work with a DOD provider or other provider. So that's our resiliency workshop. We have a fantastic program for caregivers. It's called the Military and Veteran Caregiver Network. The MBCN, you can go online and look it up. That program is particularly special because it was studied by RAND for almost a full year. And through the process of that review, it was also peer reviewed. And Terry Tenillion and a couple of other people that are in space know her name published the study and they said, this is a best practice, right? It's an evidence-based best practice on how to provide supportive services to the caregiver. So I'm taking care of my 100% service disabled veteran. I'm taking care of my service member who just got back from wherever and lost whatever. And so how do you transition from being just a family member to being a caregiver? And now we have courses for kids. And that initiative was started almost two years ago now, at a, now it's out of the White House with Elizabeth Dole Foundation. And so the two of us, she's very much in the caregiving space and is probably one of the largest proponents and advocates for the work because of the care that she had to provide to her husband, right? And the two of us worked together and, and designed along with subject matter experts from a couple of the nonprofits in DOD and VA, this concept of a course for kids. So how do I take care of dad, right? Or how do I take care of mom or take care of my parent if they're disabled or if they have a traumatic injury? Kids are caregivers all the time when their parents have a disability. But people don't really necessarily think about how to train them on how to be a caregiver and how to provide them with the support that they need as because they're kids, right? And so the whole idea was to design curricula for the parents, but also for the kids, but also create a safe space in the ecosystem so kids could talk to each other about their experiences of being a caregiver. That's one of the, one of the evidence-based practices, this peer model where you've got somebody that's talking to you that's been through it. So those courses, the caregiver courses or suite of courses, as I like to call them, they're mostly online. There's some in-person facilitated sessions, and it's actually the only peer-reviewed evidence-based best practice for military and veteran caregivers. And that program is also quite successful. Yeah, I think that's great. And I'll definitely make sure links to those in the show notes. Now, the other thing is I'm listening to you, you have used a particular word very frequently, and I'd like to provide you an opportunity to say how important volunteers are to the Red Cross, even at the point of before we get us started talking, you're like, always be recruiting, right? You even asked if I was volunteer with the Red Cross. Um, I'm going to get you before it's over. <laughs> volunteers are a critical aspect to what Red Cross does. I'd like to hear you talk about how listeners who may be in the military and veteran support space, how important it might be for them to consider volunteering for the Red Cross. Yeah, in, in the space or even just interested in the space, right? Less than 1%, as you know, serve. So the vast majority of Americans, everyday citizens have no concept or idea of what it really means to serve. And I think, I can't, I'm not going to get it right, but I think it was a Washington Post survey eight years ago 
that looked at this specific issue, this issue of does the American community understand the warfighter or not and vice versa. And they also asked the warfighter, do you think the American community understands you, what you went through and what it requires to be in the military? And they were 80% apart. And that's a problem. And you mentioned volunteers that, that are in the community, which is important, but we also as nonprofits have to pull people that haven't served that have no, nobody in the mil- in their family that was in the military that have not had this experience or don't understand the ecosystem. We need to reach out to those non-veteran military connected communities and bring in volunteers from that community to serve with the veteran military family community so that we can start uh, bridging, you know, what Stanley McChrystal calls the civil military divide. There has to be a mechanism for bridging. I think volunteerism is that most people will volunteer for something they feel passionately about. Actually, that's the thing that you can't get full volunteer for something that you want them to do. They have to feel compelled and pulled into that, that particular service. And we provide a mechanism that allows us to interview and understand what they're interested in and then match them with that service opportunity, wide spectrum of services that you can volunteer for the American Red Cross, but we treat it like a job. So if you go online and you go to our volunteer connection or better yet, just download the Hero Care app. That's how you get into our community, the Hero Care app on Android and iOS. The Hero Care app will direct you in all a bunch of different directions to include how to volunteer. But when you get to that volunteer portal, it's going to feel very much like a job application, which is intentional because we want to know where your strengths and weaknesses are and also what are you interested in doing. And so there's a bit of matching that goes on behind the scenes and you'll get spit out a couple different volunteer opportunities based upon your profile. And then you can select the volunteer op- experience that you want to have and you can select the time of day, where physically located, where you want to do it, how long you want to volunteer. And then you're going to get a call from somebody that works in that area. So if you're in the veteran military family space, you're going to get a call from one of my team members. If you want to volunteer in, in the, the biomed or the blood space, you're going to get a call from them. If you want to volunteer in disaster, you're going to get a call from them. If you want to volunteer in training services and CPR and AED, you're going to call from them and they'll say, I heard you're in this area. Here's where our branch and our chapter is. And let me tell you about the services that we have in the area based upon your profile. It looks like this will work for you. Let's get you signed up, right? That entire experience is designed to ensure that America Red Cross volunteers have a good experience. And we have to try and keep those volunteers happy. So we do a lot of celebrations and in, in honoring our volunteers. We're one of the largest nonprofits to hand out the President's Volunteer Service Award, which is the highest award recognition in the country for civilian volunteerism. And that award is, is issued by the President of the United States. And so it's a recognition like that. We will cover the cost largely of the transportation of our volunteers to service sites and lodging. And we provide a small a stipend for food. So when you're on mission as a volunteer as an American Red Cross team member, you're on our team. And we're going to take care of you as you're a member of our team. And we're going to give you leadership opportunities on that team. So I have myself 16 volunteer partners. And of those 16 volunteer partners, they help me in a lot of different areas. I took a volunteer to Europe to assist me in implementation of, of a new deployment design. Volunteers are regularly engaged in our hospital doing clinical work, something that's meaningful and impactful, but also helps them. So if I'm a licensed clinician, I have hours, right? I have CME hours I have to do, or I have a certain amount of bedside hours that I have to do. So we provide you with the opportunity to use your professional skill set as a volunteer. And not a lot of organizations do that either. I literally have 12,000 volunteers that work in this business line, and they range from 
grandma and grandpa uh, walking down the hallway in a military treatment facility or VA hospital with a cart of goodies, just stopping in to say, hey, how you doing? All the way to somebody that's, that's a licensed behavioral health professional or a surgeon uh, that's providing clinical services in that setting, right? So the spectrum is also quite huge. So yes, we have 300,000 volunteers uh, on any given day out there engaging in humanitarian services and 12,000 of them are assigned just to work in the veteran military family space. The American Red Cross can't do what we do without highly committed and incredibly impactful and amazing volunteers. Yeah, no, and going back to how you had mentioned before, especially those who have served, looking for a way to continue to serve after their military service is over, this is an opportunity. But also for those who want to engage with the military and veteran population, this is also a great way to do that. You mentioned the Hero Care app. So if people wanted to find out more about the Red Cross's military and veterans programs or to reach out and volunteer, if there's a place on the website, how can they do that? Sure. So redcross.org, that's the website, slash volunteer, and then you'll get, on, you'll get on there. Our website's pretty easy to navigate. You'll see very quickly under the services tab what area you're particularly interested in. But the, pro, the, the volunteer onboarding system is called Volunteer Connection. So you could just type in Volunteer Connection into the search bar and it'll quickly take you there. But yeah, the full suite of services by, by business unit is there as well. But yeah, Hero Care app is the best thing to do because it's on your phone and you can quickly scroll through yeah, any of the services that we provide and also we'll geolocate and map you to different Red Cross offices and service sites where we are. So know where you are in relationship to a Red Cross office. And we do push notifications too. So if there is a significant event or maybe there's a disaster that's located, you can also download the disaster app and it'll push notifications to you. And you can also start your emergency communication message on the app as well. So you can store your service members information there. Don't have to worry about fumbling around trying to find the social or the service duty location, right? So it's all encrypted because it stays in your phone and start the message if there's an emergency. So a lot of military spouses and loved ones will use it for that purpose too. That's great. And we'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. Kobe, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Dwayne, thank you. And I, a lot of people like to say thank you for your service. I'm on the edge on that one. So I like to say thank you for your continuing service. So I appreciate the work that you're doing for our community and also really grateful that you gave me an opportunity to talk to your audience about our amazing volunteers and the good work we do. Thank you. Absolutely. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is a premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. So another great conversation with a lot of great content. Not only was it valuable to hear Kobe's own journey in post-military life, it was also beneficial to hear the opportunities provided by the Red Cross. As he mentioned, and as we've talked about on the show, Veterans and military family members are always looking for ways to continue to serve after their time in the military is done, and the Red Cross has lots of chances to do so in a meaningful way. So I'll keep my post-interview comments brief and just mention that there are a bunch of links in the show notes to get at some of the great content that Kobe shared. So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Kobe. If you did, we'd appreciate hearing from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at we're always glad to hear from listeners both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psychomer Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the Behind the Mission podcast episode number 34, highlighting the American Red Cross Military and Veteran Caregiver Network. 
On this episode, we have a conversation with Melissa Como, Marine Corps spouse and director of the American Red Cross's Military and Veteran Caregiver Network, an organization that offers peer-based support and services to provide connection between those providing care to service members and veterans living with wounds, illnesses, injuries, and or aging. You can find a link in our show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychummer website, psychummer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psycharmor. Much appreciation to the team at Psycharmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator. Support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.